I want to provide tonight for you the shape of a plan to address both fears, both to beat the virus and provide the first sketch of a roadmap for reopening society, a sense of the way ahead and when and how and on what basis we will take the decisions to proceed. So, as Boris Johnson said in not much detail on Sunday night, but in slightly more detail in the government's 50-page lockdown exit strategy, we are starting to emerge from our homes. A lot of people are confused. Uh, Indeed, who you can meet, how many people you can meet, and where you can meet them seems to have evolved into some kind of mind-bending quantum problem. The facts are, we can meet up with members of a different household as long as we remain outside and two metres apart. Cleaners and nannies can come into our homes, uh, as can estate agents, uh, and those who work in the manufacturing and industrial sectors can go back to work again. But while we're all craving a change in the social status of lockdown measures, it's clear that the number one priority is restarting the economy. And recent data has revealed why that is so crucial. Well, as you know, a recession is defined technically as two quarters of decline in GDP. Uh, we've seen one here with uh, you know, a, a, only a few days of impact from the virus. So it is now, yes, very likely that the UK economy will face a significant recession this year. Uh, and we are in the middle of that as we speak. Hello and welcome to the Investment Hour. I'm John Human. And I'm Megan Boxall, and this week we'll be discussing how the UK economy will rebound once in lockdown measures ease, and we'll be joined by Harriet Clarfelt to discuss how the healthcare industry, including some AIM companies, are helping us get there faster. And then I'll be talking to John Rosier about how his portfolio is faring during coronavirus. And finally, my weekly chat with Phil to discuss a company that is helping many of us get through the worst of lockdown. It's going to be hard work for Diageo over the next few years. Certainly, in my opinion, the share price does not assume that. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. So, Megan, you mentioned that uh, that recent data has revealed why it's so critical that we uh, we get out and about and back to work. What, uh, what exactly are the numbers telling us? Well, the UK economic data this week, which is the first time that we've actually had hard evidence that things are not going particularly well for the economy, has shown a sharp sell-off in the first quarter. But obviously, the first quarter ended in March which meant there were only a couple of weeks of of lockdown, of coronavirus having an impact. I mean, we were still at work in the first couple of weeks of March and London was was buzzing and, and it's definitely not anymore. So the fact that the first quarter economic figures were so bad means that the second quarter economic figures will almost certainly be much, much worse. And it's two quarters in a, in a row, which signifies recession. And uh, that is what we assume is going to happen when we get second quarter data sometime in the summer. And that's what Rishi Sunak hinted at when he spoke to the BBC earlier in the week. We've also had the first signs of weakness in the housing market. The government's trying to get, get the housing market going again by saying that estate agents can open again. And and yeah, like you said in the introduction, it, it's a bit of a it's all a bit of a quantum web of confusion when when yeah we're allowing estate agents into our homes but we can't have our family allowed into our homes but then that is what they are deeming most crucial because unless we start kicking the housing market into action it's going to be some some serious repercussions there and there it's already starting to show and obviously in the US we've got job losses I mean the only reason really that the UK job losses aren't much more catastrophic is because of the furlough scheme 
which has now been extended until October. But the price of that is now becoming astronomical. Six months of the government paying paying wages, it, it's now we're now asking questions of where that money is going to come from. And it looks like it's going to come from public sector pay freezes, which is just absurd because at the same time that we're clapping our nurses on a Thursday evening, we're also saying, you know what, you're probably not going to get a pay rise for the next few years while we while we deal with paying with staff furloughs it's all it's all a bit of a mess which i can completely see why government is now trying to get the economy going again yeah nobody wants austerity back particularly uh particularly the public sector i mean i I actually um looked up some numbers to to add into my editorial the the furlough scheme is costing 14 billion pounds a month uh and has now been extended to october and the deficit this year is now expected to hit 340 billion uh, when it was previously expected to, to hit 60. So you can see why the government is prioritising getting the economy kick-started. Leave it too long and it just won't be able to start. This is the, yeah, this is the great worry. Um, and obviously one of the things that underpins, as you, as you alluded to, the, uh, the health of the UK economy is housing, is, is, uh, is the construction market, are those house builders getting, getting back on site, are those homes being shifted, uh, and the second, secondary home market you know, ticking over nicely, um, because that will also underpins consumer spending. So we, uh, so yes, the government has clearly made its priority. Uh, no confusion there. Get the economy started again. But then, like you say, the then the issue becomes consumer spending, and it's hard to find places to as consumers to spend our money at the moment. And then, and that then comes back to the social aspect of lockdown. We go to the pubs, we go to restaurants, really to socialise, to see people. It's a social occasion, which, okay, yeah, that maybe isn't a priority at the moment. But actually, if we're going to get the economy going properly, those things are going to have to start opening too, because otherwise, okay, people will be going back to work, but they won't be feeding up the next stage of the chain, which is actually spending their money. And then that feeds up into into the commercial property sector and the banks, as we've discussed in a previous podcast. So, yeah, getting things going is definitely of utmost importance, but keeping the healthcare issues in mind. And that is where we come back to the, the massive issue of the fact that really the economy isn't going to get going properly again until we have a healthcare solution. And at the moment, we're just so far away from that. Should we uh, speak to Harriet and find out what sort of progress is being made there? Yeah. Hi, Harriet. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, I mean, the healthcare situation is pretty crucial to us getting everything back on track. So where are we? There are three areas that um, companies and institutions around the world are really focusing on, and that's vaccines, treatment and testing. Um, On the vaccine front, I should preface this by saying that we just don't know whether a vaccine will be found, but there are a lot of a lot lot of members of the scientific community are trying to find one in a very um, short period of time. Um, So according to the World Health Organization, there are currently eight vaccine candidates in clinical evaluation. And there are more than 100 vaccine candidates in what's called preclinical evaluation. Amazing. So they're being tested in humans. That's really, really cool. Yeah, exactly. And and to have reached that stage that fast is kind of unprecedented, to use a word that's been used a lot during this pandemic. Um, Vaccine development can take a decade normally because so much time needs to be taken normally in terms of testing the efficacy of a vaccine, but also ensuring that it's safe in all different types of demographic of the human population. So, I mean, there are, apart from that, there are issues. Um, and, you know, one of them is that we do kind of need to put the cart before the horse with vaccines. Um, because we're in the middle of this pandemic, we need to ensure that all the infrastructure is in place. So that in order to manufacture a vaccine, if hopefully one of them proves successful, 
Um, and the other another issue is that we are hopefully at the tail end of this particular outbreak of coronavirus. But in order to test a vaccine, you need there to be a certain level of infection in the population normally um, to be able to make sure it works. So that could be an issue. They've injected these people with the vaccine, but now they're still in lockdown. So they're not actually being exposed to the coronavirus. So people want to test. The other big area of the healthcare situation that you mentioned right at the beginning was testing. And I mean, this morning, just before we started recording, there has been some positive news. I mean, it's the head, all the headlines on Thursday morning. There's a potential antibody test getting ready to be approved in the UK, made by Roche. What's... What's the situation there and and how might that antibody test help us? So up until now, I think there have been a few false starts by the sounds of things. Um, there have been various antibody tests have been trialled, have, have come here to England, and it has turned out that the health authorities don't think that they are adequate, that they're not sort of accurate enough. And antibody tests basically work by detecting whether, well, so these, this type of antibody test works by detecting whether someone has previously been infected with the coronavirus. Um, so it doesn't necessarily tell you whether you have it now, but it could tell you whether you had it a few weeks ago. There is some hope that if you have the antibodies in your blood, you might have some protection against being reinfected. Interestingly, actually, my um, brother received a letter from Imperial College, who are responsible for some of the modelling around this this outbreak, inviting them to take a test to see whether they had had the coronavirus. Uh, and actually, they were more interested in my niece, his daughter, which I thought was quite interesting. Perhaps ties back to our uh, our view that you know the most important thing is reopening the economy, getting people back to schools. But 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 you know, it does seem that there is some movement on an antibody test, or at least testing an antibody test at some of the universities. Yeah, and what would be so significant about that is if it does turn out that lots of people have had coronavirus and and weren't tested, which is probably the case. There's probably far more people who've had it because in, at, at the beginning they were only testing people in hospital. And that would mean that if you do pick up immunity, which you do from most viruses, the question is really how long that immunity lasts. Other types of coronavirus, for example, like the ones that cause just the common cold, your immunity doesn't last very long. Um, it lasts like a matter of weeks rather than years, which is the, how long immunity from SARS lasted. But if if we are picking up some sort of immunity, we can go back to work. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so you can see why companies would want that all their employees to be tested, um, to have the antibody test, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they're obviously going to try and figure out rapidly whether it does confer any protection at all, which, as you yeah. say, if it's similar to other viruses, then hopefully it will. It is a question of how long. And there are other tests out there that test for antibodies. So apart from Roche, Abbott Laboratories in America has two tests that can tell whether you have coronavirus right now. But they also have an antibody test either. You would think that uh, you would also think that some of the thing, the other um, technologies that they're proposing to, to manage coronavirus, like contact tracing, for example, through mobile phones, won't work unless there is mass testing in the population. Exactly. Um, those two those two strategies seem to need to work hand in hand. And um, testing the contact tracing is a whole another issue altogether because of privacy concerns around it concerns that not everyone will download the apps they need in order to be traced and contacted um, but yeah you think ideally all these strategies would work together at the same time whether that's practicable is another question I think. With the testing thing you've obviously you mentioned a couple of companies there both international companies but there are we have got exposure we can get exposure in the UK to 
antibody to, to diagnostics companies and two of them are listed on AIM, which is the subject of our cover feature this week. How are Abcam and Biobentics, what are they talking about at the moment? So um, Abcam provides protein research tools to scientists, basically um, helping them to analyse parts of living cells. And that's what they do, broadly speaking. And that helps scientists with drug discovery, other types of research, but also, as you say, diagnostics. I think Abcam said um, towards the end of April that they had been boosting their supply chain and manufacturing flexibility. They've joined, aside from diagnostics, actually, they've joined 20 collaborations across the UK, US and China focused on drug and vaccine development for coronavirus. Bioventics, um, this is a little bit more more niche, I suppose, what they do, but they make and supply sheep monoclonal antibodies for use in blood tests. Um, I suppose with bioventics... Uh, and more broadly, sorry, with the UK diagnostics industry. We've started um, from a position which was not as strong as other countries. We, don't, we didn't really have a diagnostics industry at scale before this crisis. Um, and the pandemic is really shining a light on the diagnostics companies we have here, which maybe wouldn't have got as much attention before. And so for a company like Bioventics and its peers, I suppose there is an argument that after the pandemic there will be a lot more attention on them. I mean, we might see some consolidation in the industry. Um, that's not necessarily to suggest that they will become acquisition targets, but it's not out of the realms of possibility um, that these smaller companies are going to be partnering more and more with bigger companies like, well, pharma, the pharma giants AstraZeneca and GlaxoSmithKline are now developing diagnostics capabilities really rapidly. And so it's not out of the realms of possibility that they'll continue partnering with companies like Bioventics and other smaller companies from now on. The long-term outlook for the healthcare industry across the board, not just pharmaceuticals, diagnostics, vaccines, is really interesting because, yeah, like you say, what's happened with coronavirus has shone a light on how we deal with healthcare, how we how we manage unwell populations, how we manage new diseases. And then that is putting an onus on the primary care sector as well. And again, we've got companies, some of them on AIM, which operate in the primary care space. So what do you think is going to be happening to, to that sector? Do you, do you think we'll see any changes in the way that, that we're, we're going to the doctors, we're using A&E and, and things like that? Um, well, I think the last couple of months have, have been a really strange, strange time for A&E. So I don't necessarily know whether we'll continue to see the trends we have recently where far fewer people have been going in for emergencies or even to see the doctor, maybe partly because they're nervous about being infected, but also because I think people are worried about overburdening the health system while it's dealing with coronavirus. Longer term, yes, there are. I mean, primary health properties, it, it basically provides modern healthcare facilities. They have actually said, you know, the current pandemic, they expect to reinforce the need for kind of integrated primary care facilities to help relieve the pressure on hospitals and A&E facilities. It's quite an interesting thought. So yeah, so um, primary health properties. So they have been, they've been picked as a provider to sort of consolidate. So obviously, at the moment, most of what most of what happens is you go to the GP, and that's a separate place to where you would go for an A and E, or go for some sort of bone scan or something like that. But what primary health has been doing historically has been trying to consolidate that. So all of your primary health care is in the same building, which which does make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, managing everything in one place also reduces the number of touch points you have, the number of contacts mm. you have. And if that's going to be something we're worried about for quite a protracted, protracted period of time, you know, trying to minimise um, the number of people you're in close contact with should be really important and stop people from sort of having to travel around the place to have different types of tests and care um, given to them. 
Harriet, just reading through the AIM, AIM 100 this week, the top 50, which is uh, this week's cover feature, there's, I've noticed that we've got EMIS and Craneware doing these sort of hospital management, GP management systems. It's quite big business. Yeah, it is. And they all do slightly different things. But um, I think presumably these companies will become even more important. You know, we're already in so many ways in our lives during this lockdown becoming so much more reliant on technology. And surely, you know, one of the keys to trying to create a safe and efficient environment as safe and efficient environment as possible in the healthcare system is to use technology more and more. Um, so EMIS provides, essentially provides connected healthcare software and services. Um, it serves NHS Digital, which is the sort of tech wing of the NHS. Um, it's a really interesting company. About 80% of its total sales are recurring, which is good news in terms of future visibility. So I suppose some might see it as quite a defensive company at the moment. Meanwhile, Craneware could also be seen as a pretty important company right now because management teams are going to be scrambling, you assume, to cut costs in almost every sector. And Craneware provides financial software to the US healthcare industry, helping them to identify cost savings. Um, I think with any of these companies, we can't rule out the possibility of their services being disrupted by coronavirus as much as they seem to be also helping the situation. Um, But in the longer run, I think hospital efficiency is really key and those companies are helping. The final sector where there's a lot of pressure, a lot of a lot of change going on at the moment is the care sector. And again, that's something that's been in the news a lot this week. That is a that's a tough sector at the best of times. And this is absolutely not the best of times. And yeah, I mean, going just going back to what what we've got to invest in in the UK, we've got care tech. Obviously, that's not an elderly care home. Like It's not what you'd necessarily think of a care home. It's a it's for uh, younger mental health patients but it's still a place it's still a care home it's still a place where social distancing is not going to be easy so how is care tech faring and, and how does that sector as a whole look so um yeah as you said um there are different types of care home and care facility um it is a real tragedy that so many people have become infected in care homes across the uk um and hopefully that's now coming under control but um, Care Tech, yeah, it provides care homes for children and adults below retirement age. Um, and it bought a company called Cambion in 2018, which I think tilted its operations more so that child services are a big part of what they do. Um, so kind of late April, Care Tech said that clearly there's uncertainty created by the pandemic. pandemic. Um, but the care services that it provides remain vital in the UK. It's working very closely with the local authority commissioners to maintain high standards. Um, and I think they also said that they hadn't experienced any significant impact to trading at that stage and remained on track to kind of deliver their business plan. And they talked about the visibility of their cash flows there. And I think you, you've said this, but you know, fewer than 3% of their service users fall into the formal NHS high-risk category groups for COVID-19. And that's one of the reasons it said, you know, we are different from elderly care home services, which have been really impacted by the virus. Um, There is obviously some government funding going into social care to help respond to COVID-19. And I think that care tech is in discussions about funding arrangements. But longer term, I mean, of course, it feels like demand for companies like care tech has to continue. It is a very key part of our healthcare system. There there is margins are already tight in this area. And so if they if they need to invest more in protecting um, the people living in their homes, even more than they are now, that could clearly have an impact, as could needing to get um, PPE, personal protective equipment, which 
we know just from reading the headlines has already been a struggle for frontline NHS workers. Um, I would assume it's going to be an ongoing discussion with the government to just make sure that they have all the equipment and facilities that they need. But it'll be interesting to see, to see what Caretech says in the coming months about, you know, what next, what after the virus, how are we going to make sure that we are protecting everyone? Because you can imagine as a family, you will have read all the headlines recently and be concerned about putting someone into a place where they might be in close contact with other people all the time. Mm. Um, so it is, I'm, I'm sure it is probably a number one priority at the moment. It's a really, it's a really tough sector. Like you say, the margins are so tight. And yeah, if you're thinking now that they're having to spend slightly more on PPE, that that's a difficult thing to cope with when, when they already had extensive costs and and staff costs as well and and the staff are obviously having to work extremely hard in this sector at the moment and and that's a difficult thing to manage when like you say they are very reliant on on local council funding and which is also not having the best of times especially if we're entering a, a a prolonged recession but i suppose this all ties back to the need to accelerate testing accelerate development of treatment hopefully accelerate vaccine development as well and see what happens there because all of those things together as well as these contact tracing apps should hopefully help to isolate cases and and make um all sort of healthcare settings more safe and secure absolutely well thanks very much harriet that was a really really interesting discussion i think we've covered the entirety of the uk healthcare sector (laughs) (laughs) no problem so as we heard there, there's a lot going on in healthcare. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, it takes centre stage in our AIM 100 feature this week. There's no fewer than a dozen uh, healthcare-related companies in the top 50. Um, all very interesting. Um, healthcare also takes centre stage uh, in the portfolio of our private investor diarist, John Rosier. And we're going to hear from him now. How are you doing, John? Very well, thank you. Yep, bearing up. Good, good. Uh, it's been a while since we caught up uh, on the podcast. Uh, it's fair to say quite a lot has happened since. How have you been coping? Well, all right. I mean, it's been very, it's been a fantastic time. You know, if you're interested in markets, um, it's been fascinating. Um, I mean, in terms of personal thing, I mean, I work from home uh, anyway. So um, getting used to that wasn't wasn't difficult, but but the one thing is when you do work from home, you you always need to make an effort to make sure that you do get out and see people and go to meetings, meet companies, whatever. Um, and so I guess that's what what I've been missing. Absolutely. What what have you been making of the markets over the past few months? I know we spoke possibly January, uh, and I know you had some concerns at the time. Well, at the time, um, I mean, we were just really starting to hear, you know, from China in terms of their lockdown and what was going on in Wuhan. Um, and I mean, my my concern then, you know, I voiced and I wrote my, uh, you know, wrote in my monthly column, was that um, basically we were being too blasé uh, in the West about what effect it would probably have on sort of um, distribution, et cetera, um, you know, in terms of products getting through uh, to the, you know, to the West. Um, and so I, I but, you know, I never thought we were going to get anything like what we've now seen. But um, I did think there was going to be some economic disruption. So, you know, I had started to build um, some cash and also, you know, some gold exposure. So I think at the end of January I was up to you know about fifteen well fifteen percent cash and around fifteen percent 
gold exposure. But then during February, I increased that further. So, you know, the, the end of month portfolios are, you know, are there for the record. Um, and I got up towards 20% um, cash and, you know, sort of, I think nearly 20% gold exposure towards the end of February. Yeah, and then you got a bit more bullish after the. I mean, there was a bit of a, obviously a quite a hideous sell-off, but but you uh, you kind of held held firm. Uh, and, and you know, looking at your portfolio, it seems to have been perfectly positioned to to cope with the sell-off when it came and the recovery when it came. Uh, yeah, I think per- perfect. Perfectly might, might be pushing it. <laughs> might well be pushing positioned. it a bit. But um, but yes, um, I I in March. I mean, as things got hit hard. Um, I, I did think that, you know, I wanted to get some of my cash back to work. And the way I, I tried to sort of look at this was, was not get caught up in the sort of emotion of the moment and try and think, right, in a year's time, where, where might this stock be? You know, if, if, you know, lockdown and things and things start to recover, I mean, has it been hit so hard that the valuation now is just just bonkers and mad? And and one thing that did help me also was, you know, I was I was following quite a lot of these sort of sentiment um, um, guides, um, especially from the US. There's something I I subscribe to called Sentiment Trader, and um, that that sort of tells you what the market is thinking. Um, rather than listening to what people are thinking. So um, how it's best described that, it's basically able to measure how bearish or bullish people really are by their actions, not by what they say. So sort of mid to uh, mid, mid-March, mid to end-March, you had levels of sort of bearishness that um, you know, were worse than you saw back in 2008 during the financial crisis. And, uh, you know, they have stats going right back to the, uh, you know, to the 1929 crash and things. So that gave me a bit of, you know, a bit of um, confidence, I guess, that maybe uh, things were being overdone and you know, I could put, put the cash back in. So you've had, a, you've had a really nice bounce back this month. What, what sort of led the way there? Well, April was, um, you know, fantastic, um, um, as, you know, as you say, in terms of the, the recovery. I mean, the portfolio was up 17.2%, um, but, you know, in March it was down 16.1%. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the main things were, well, you know, Rockrose Energy uh, killed me in March. It was my worst stock. And then uh, in April it was up 40, 41%. So, so that helped. Um, then other areas, I mean, the, the gold uh, exposure did well. Um, my, I've got exposure to junior gold miners through the Vanet Junior Gold Miners ETF, and that that was up forty-one uh, percent uh, in April. In uh, the NNT Gold Mining ETF, which invests in larger gold miners, was up thirty-eight percent in April. Um, so you know, stocks like that. And then Anglo Pacific, which is a royalty company, um, invests in sort of mining. Uh, royalties that that was up forty percent, um, and that that was helped by a very good Q1 uh, sort of results uh, statement. Your uh, I mean your gold positions have obviously you know stood you in good stead. I mean gold is not exactly you know the, the the thing you would buy if you were a massive bull, but you know the defensiveness has worked there. Healthcare is another thing that you have quite significant exposure to, and that that's been uh, serving you well too. 
I do, yes. So um, my two largest positions are um, Worldwide Healthcare Trust. Um, so I've got 7.3% in that uh, as of today. And Biotech Growth Trust, they're also 7.3%. So within the two, nearly 15%. Um, both of those trusts are actually managed out of uh, New York by a company called Orbimed. And Orbimed has around 13 billion um, assets under management, $13 billion. But they they specialize in, in healthcare um, as, a, as a company. Um, and, you know, these two funds, I mean, I, I bought them when I first sort of set up the JIC portfolio in 2012. Um, and... They've, they've been tremendous, and I should never have actually traded any. I should have just stuck with the original position where that I have, you know, occasionally bought and sold. But you know, worldwide healthcare, just take that. That um, over the last ten years, you've made five point four times your money. Um, they pay a. It's a FTSE two fifty um, member. Of the FTSE two fifty. It's ranked about number fifty in the the 250 with a 1.9 billion market cap. So it's not unreasonable to think it might end the FTSE 100 at some stage. But basically, it, it invests in you know the global healthcare sector that focuses on the the largest uh, the largest companies. I mean, names that we you know we'll all we'll all recognise. And the top 10 positions are add up to around 50% of the portfolio. Um, but it's uh, stocks like um, well, Takeda from Japan, which uh, makes medical you know, instruments. But then you've got drug companies like Merck and Novartis, uh, Bristol Myers, you know, Pfizer. So um, mainly North American, a couple of Europeans, one Japan in the top 10. Basically, big established companies. It's it's interesting that you've held this for quite some time because you know there's been a lot of interest in healthcare, unsurprisingly, as a result of COVID nineteen. But but these are not COVID trades; they just happen to be the trends that you've tapped into. No, they're not. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, the trend was um, basically you've got a growing world population, you've got an aging world population, you've got a world population that's generally becoming wealthier. Um, with economic growth, especially in you know developing parts of the world, and you know everyone wants good healthcare. So it just seemed to me that expenditure was going to be a major driver, you know, in the long term. Then secondly, um, you know, with uh, you know in, in technology and the the impact of technology in terms of what healthcare could provide. You know, all the time we're hearing about new drugs, new procedures, etc., which are improving people's quality of life. And you know, it, it, it's not unnatural that people want that. So it, to me, it was a good long-term trend. But um, yes, I mean, COVID, I guess, will accelerate that trend to some extent. More, more money is likely to go into this area. So you're going to be sticking with these ones as your as your largest positions then? Um yeah, I have no intent. To, I mean, it's, 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 again, it's another difficult one, isn't it? So, very keen on an idea like what you know these two, and as I say, they add up to fifteen percent of the portfolio. Yeah, what's the right amount though? Um, why not twenty percent? <laughs> you know, it, it's it's so difficult when you're sort of building a portfolio to to decide how much to put in. Well, I don't feel uncomfortable with fifteen percent in there, and I, I think I'll let them run. 
And and the thing is, you know, I've I've put the top ten stock um, of worldwide healthcare into uh, you know into Stockpedia, and you just look at the valuations of the stocks. I mean, they they look good value. Um, you know, even after this sort of run, you're not you're not buying things at, at you know huge huge uh, you know valuation. Yeah, I mean that that said though, after being fully invested uh, a month or two ago, you've gone back to a reasonably large cash position. Cash is now your biggest position. What what's the thinking there? Um, it, well, it was just we've had such a fantastic bounce uh, in markets. Um, it, you know, it it wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me if you saw a pause for breath, um, and, and maybe you know maybe the people who are very bearish and uh, think this is just a bear market rally. I mean, I don't know. They they may they may be correct. Um, I think with all the cash that's being thrown um, at economies, both monetary and, and fiscal, and they, that actually seems to be blurred as well now. Um, you know, may, maybe. Um, We'll, we'll muddle through this again. Um, there may be you know, uh, consequences further out, but um, but you know, I, I what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is I have no idea where the market is going um, any more than anyone else does. But so I do try and focus on getting the. Um, I guess getting the mix of stocks in the portfolio. Um, Correct, um, but uh, you know, holding stocks that I I believe in, I think will survive. That's obviously the most important thing. There's no point in holding a stock that's going to disappear in a year's time because it goes bust with too much debt or whatever. So, so really, really focusing on the companies, the valuations, and realistically where they could be on some sort of recovery in the economy over the next year and, and beyond. Okay, so, so I think it's fair to say, I mean, you're not betting on a recovery because we can't actually predict when or how that recovery will come, but you've positioned, your, you're managing your risk in a way which will see you through whatever shape that recovery takes. Yes, I think, I think that's exactly it. You know, so, so hence, hence still having the big gold exposure. Um, you know, because I, I think if the market did drop 20%, at 25-30% over the next four or five months, I think that would um, do me well because I think uh, when people are fearful, they'll go for gold. The cost of holding at the opportunity cost is virtually zero. You're not really getting much of a yield on on government bonds. Um, and also, so you know, there's two ways it works. If people are, uh, are just worried about the whole system imploding or whatever, then then people will like to have some physical gold or exposure to gold. Um, and if you believe the other way that all this is going to lead to huge inflation at some stage, well, then again, gold should benefit that way. So, uh, you know, I think it, it is quite a good hedge. Um, cash is obviously reasonably good. I say the sort of defensive areas like healthcare and the biotech growth trust, that, that should do well. Um, so, yes, it's really a matter of trying to manage the risk of the overall portfolio. And, and having a little bit of tax so that, you know, if something hard that you actually quite like, um, you know, you can do something about it. You've got a bit of ammunition, a bit of firepower. Yeah, it's a very sensible approach and, uh, and readers can, uh, can uh, get more detail on that in this week's magazine. Thank you very much, John. Okay, thank you. So now I'm going to speak to Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? All right, thanks, John. How are you? Not too bad. Looking good there, Phil. Thank you very much. Yeah, self, self-inflicted trim. 
<laughs> I'm quite proud of it, actually. It's pretty good. Never have to go to the hairdresser again. Um, not, not that you have to worry about that for the time being, because the hairdresser is not on the list of businesses that are going to open at any time in the near future. What did you make of, uh, of uh, Boris's lockdown lifting? Uh, well, I'm not surprised. Um, I imagine that the government is on a, under a lot of pressure um, from businesses to open up the economy, and I'm sure that the, the number crunches in the Treasury looking at the state of the public finances every day and getting more and more worried. I, I also think that, I don't mean to be sort of overly critical about this, so I don't want to make a big thing about it, but I, I, I think this is all part, of, all part of the sort of working plan to deal with the virus as well. I think it fits in, it fits in with the fact that they've got to get the economy going. But also, I think there's no getting away from the facts. So, you know, if you actually just look at the cold, hard facts that if you haven't got a vaccine for this virus, then the only way that you can get past it is attempt to try and get some form of herd immunity to it. And to do that, unfortunately, more people have got to get this. And the way that people will get it is they go outside again and they go back to doing normal things again. And call me cynical if you wish, but I think what's been going on is the government has been waiting for the NHS capacity, i.e. beds available, so that they can cope with a second wave. And they probably think they're not far away from that now. And they're going to open things up. You've talked about this in your Alpha report this week. And uh, you, you mentioned a comment uh, specifically by Matt Hancock, the health secretary, which has made you think this way. It's what all roads lead to. It's what the, it's what the economic road leads to, because this is just so painful. The lockdown is so painful for the economy and um, we can't just all sit here and wait for there a virus for a vaccine to come because a vaccine may never come. Well, we spoke to Harriet Clarfeld earlier, and you know there are some you know good efforts on the on the front of finding a vaccine. But you know this is a long process, even if it's compressed in the way they're trying to compress it now. It, it could be years still. Well, how long have people been trying to get a vaccine for the common cold? Well, ever? Yeah, I mean, you know, it'd be great if they if they do get get a vaccine. But um, you know, if you if you go back to sort of you know, 1918 Spanish flu. Now, eventually, it peters itself out through a couple of waves. And uh, maybe maybe this is the way that, that it has to happen. And it's not very nice. It's a slightly frightening prospect, but then the prospect of spending another eight weeks sitting in this, uh, this study is not exactly appealing ever. I mean, there's lots of businesses that must be on their last legs at the moment. I mean, we, you know, we hear lots of things about the market being strong, but actually that is driven by what seems to me a few sort of key sectors, tech, healthcare, and and so on. Everything else looks on its knees. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at you look at what's going on in the real economy, and you're beginning to see this now in in company earnings updates. You know, we've seen a lot of half year results come through in the last week or two, and you get you know the half year to the end of March, and you get you know maybe two weeks of lockdown in there, and you look at the damage that two weeks in lockdown did to revenues and profits. Just two weeks. And then they go on and say, well, actually, everything fell off a cliff in April. And what we're, what we're seeing now is companies being pretty candid and saying, look, April was terrible. We think May and June could be even worse. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, certain, certain industries, um, certain sections of the economy must be on their knees. And they are. And, and I think the harsh, 
harsh reality for some parts of the economy is that there is no getting back to normal if we have social distancing. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a company that you've actually written about in the Alpha Report as well, which had some figures this week, Sage, which is a business we like. It's a tech business as well. It sells software uh, to companies to manage their their accounts. Um, and, you know, even a company like that is now saying we're seeing some some fallout here. And I guess that's because of something we've, we've talked about on previous podcasts about, you know, Ultimately, even good tech companies have exposure to the economy somewhere. And in Sage's case, that's in the form of, of small businesses. There's no getting away from it. Yeah, I mean, if you're selling, selling to a small business and that small business is struggling and, you know, if you're, let's say they're buying software licenses and they lay off 10 people or how many people and each one of those has a license, that's 10 licenses you don't need or that's 10 subscriptions that you don't need. And that's, that's less revenue for a software company. I think what we're going to find is that there is virtually nothing that can come out of this unscathed. And I think, I think, but I think the real question is, what happens when we do, do go back? Um, and we, we talked about this before. You know, we've talked about how people's habits are changing. People are realising what they need and what they don't need. And that's before, you know, you take into the consideration of, what happens if this virus is something that we have to stick to cope with for years? Um, so there are huge challenges out there. I mean, you talked about the second wave. That's that's what seems to me like the first challenge we may have to overcome. Um, and you know, if there is a second wave, that that potentially brings the economy back into into standstill. People will just stay at home if they are terrified of getting this thing. I, I can't see at, the, at this moment in time how they can't. There can't be a second wave. Because because the virus is still there, it's still out there. You know, unless it, you know, if, if more and more of us start going out, it's you know the infection rate's going to go up, and you, you're seeing that in places like uh, Germany, South Korea. You know, they're, they're trying to they're trying to get back, and the the infection rate is going back up again. And obviously, if the infection rate gets to a certain level where one person starts infecting more than one other person, then you're probably going into lockdown again. But but the whole problem is, is that you can't go on like this. The economy cannot survive like this. I mean, the, some of the areas where the government is trying to get people back to work, I mean, the property market, they've, uh, they've essentially tried to kickstart this week, telling estate agencies that they can open again, getting people back on building sites and house building. I mean... That's quite interesting. Kind of, kind of says to me how important property is to the UK economy, um, and and as something that perhaps underpins consumer spending more broadly. The British, the British see the property as a cash machine. Um, you know, the the government see property, the construction industry, the supply chain, and all the associated demand that goes through the property sector. It's always been the sector for the last thirty odd years. Where the government, the government basically turns to that to get the economy going. Mm. We are far too reliant on it in so many ways, and it's no surprise that um, you know that they they they're, they're trying to open it back up. Is it too late for them though? I mean, you know, how, how many people are realistically going to be rushing out, moving house? What I think is happening here is that the, the, this virus has actually just brought everything to a head. I've, I've taken the view that, you know, let's talk about property. You know, we know the new build property market is rigged. It's rigged, you know, through through help to buy. And, you know, those pri- the prices have got more and more out of kilter for new build with existing stock. You know, there are going to be builders now who are looking at plots of land that they own and thinking, am I really going to get these selling prices that I've factored in to, to, to you know to all my budgets here, and my my view, 
is is that there's not they're not going to do that and i think i think that the banks even with you know if you look at if you look at what's happening in the mortgage market you know you hear stories that pretty much banks are are withdrawing mortgage finance no and you've got a lot of employees who are furloughed at the moment so i, I don't really know what um banks policies towards lending to furloughed employees would be i can't imagine they would be keen to do it because who knows what, what that furlough will become if the economy worsens well we know it's been extended to october and it's costing you know it's costing the taxpayer eight billion pounds a month i thought it was 14 is it 14 14 okay. it might be phil it's even bigger it's even worse you know the interesting thing about two, the 2008 2009 recession is that government through supporting the banks through the kitchen sink at the at the housing market not just through help to buy but you know mortgage forgiveness you know if people had built up equity in their houses they were allowed to take payment holidays and that kind of thing and i think that's that's going on now as well but the big difference between now and 2008 and one of the things about 2008 2009 is that unemployment actually didn't go up that much you know lots of people actually stayed in their jobs and, and kept earning a wage. And, you know, if you go back to the previous, and this is why house prices didn't fall that much, not like the early 90s where you did get a big spike in unemployment and house prices couldn't keep the level. And I think, you know, the furlough scheme, and, you know, we mentioned how dependent dependent the UK is on property. This is all part of the jigsaw. You know, you try and keep people either in work or with cash in their pocket so they can keep this show on the road. I mean, it's it's uh, quite terrifying how significant the, the furlough scheme is in terms of actually keeping people paid. I mean, as I read the other day, I think nearly half the population across the public sector and the furlough scheme are now paid directly by the state, which is extraordinary. Um, but, I mean, there are big industries that there's seemingly no sign of them opening up again you know pubs and restaurants in particular um and you know this is this is this is a country that is built around these kind of things built around retail built built around spending money uh going out uh with family and friends um they, i mean this is this is a major part of the economy that's that's just not moving and and doesn't there seems to be no movement in sight so I mean, what what's what's the fallout here there's a lot of pub companies on the stock market, a lot of drinks companies. We're going to talk about Diageo in a minute, um, and possibly Fever Tree. You know, they, they, they must be hurting so badly. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the moment these businesses have got no revenue, so they furloughed a lot of their staff. So they've got they've got the wages are about 35 percent of revenue for for pubs. So they've, they've parked that. They may be getting a bit of help from rents, business rates they're getting some help from. But, you know, they've still got some costs. And the key, the key thing about this is when, when they get back together, when they get back up and running again, is that with any business, it's something called contribution, profit contribution. So you sell, you know, let's take a pub. You're selling food, you're selling beer, wine, spirits, and you will make a contribution, which is what you sell it for, less the cost of making it, plus some overheads. And then what you have left over, you have to pay your fixed costs, and then hopefully you've got something left over to help to make a profit. Now, the problem with pubs got at the moment is let, let's say we move away from zero revenue and everything's closed to things moving up again, but you've got social distancing. So let's say that a full pub on a Friday night is 100 people. But actually, now you can only have 
30 people in the pub with social distancing. The, the problem that the pub's got is they cannot sell enough, enough food and drink to make the profit contribution to cover their costs. They can't make a profit at that level of customer footfall. And so these pub companies are looking at this and thinking, you know, we're stuffed here because, you know, unless we get, get back to what we were, and let's face it, pubs are hardly making, we're hardly making a lot of money anyway. Some of these pubs are on way too thin margins, you know, even Weatherspoons is only making about 7%. And the, the, there's, there's no way that these pub companies and restaurant companies can can make a profit if they could only have a third of third of their normal customer customer volume. So the, these companies are are stuck really in a in a very bad place, and by implication, so are the companies that supply them. Yeah, should we talk about the companies that supply them? Let's let's talk about Diageo, and I think Fever Tree falls into the same bracket as well. They're in our um. A100 feature this week, but it's been a bit tough for them too. Let's talk about Diageo, um, because it's a great business. It's a business we all really like, but there's no getting away from the fact that this crisis has had a massive impact on them. Talk us through what the future looks like for them and, and, you know, how bad, you know, it is for them at the moment. Um, It's it's very bad. I mean, they came out, I think, in February, late, late February. And this is when the lockdowns were pretty much still a Chinese Asian thing. I have to admit, I was quite shocked just by how much of a hit to revenue and to profit just just a Chinese business being locked down for a few weeks was going to do to, to Diageo's profits. And obviously that's now moved on to Diageo's major markets, which are the United States, which is nearly half its profits from North America and Europe. And particularly, you know, there's a difference in terms of the markets that they serve. So there's the on-trade, pubs, bars, hotels, restaurants, and then there's the off-trade, so off-licenses, supermarkets, that kind of thing. Um, And in Europe, 50% of Diageo's sales are on-trade, which is effectively shut down. And in America, it's about 20%. Uh, of spirits, spirits, which is which is the bulk of their business, is 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 on trade. So these these have basically got no no revenue. There's no revenue coming from these from these sources. They also make a lot of money, don't they, from things like duty free as well. So outside of the on trade, there is there is a significant business there that's not happening at all. Like we've seen with W H Smith, for example, the airport business, the sale of booze in the airport. That's that's pretty much gone as well. Yeah, yeah, that's gone. But I think the other thing the other thing to bear in mind as well is that you know. Diageo's whole strategy is playing this premiumization theme, getting people to not drink, this is their words, not drink more, but drink better. You know, and instead of buying a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label for 30 quid a bottle, you can buy a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue Label for 130 quid a bottle. And it tastes pretty much the same. Actually. I can see the look on your face there, a look of disgust there. <laughs> um, <laughs> But that's but actually that's been working quite well. But you see, if we get to a situation where we come out of this, or we have a prolonged period of this, and people are poorer, they're probably going to they're probably not going to buy these premium products. You know, they're probably going to trade down. And so there's a there's an implication for the mix for the mix of sales and the profit margin on the sales. One of the reasons Diageo's margins have been going up is because it's been shifting people to these more expensive bottles of whiskey and bottles of gin. And 
uh, they'll probably they'll probably trade down to, to cheaper brands. You know, the company, unsurprisingly, hasn't given any guidance of what its profits going to be because it doesn't know. But my my take on it is that it's going to look absolutely horrible. It's funny because it was very, as you say, it was very quick to come out with guidance when there was a China lockdown, and now not so much. Yeah, it's just I think because you're just dealing with a just a much 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 bigger business. But if you were to sort of extrapolate, you know, the effects across, you know, you 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 know, you're looking at a real bloodbath to, to profitability. You know, and you know, cash flow is cash flow is so important. I mean, the is not going to go bust. But, you know, you're looking at a business which is, you know, carrying five billion pounds of stock, you know, four billion pounds of, of maturing spirits in warehouses and that kind of stuff. And, you know, you need you need the cash flow to, to fund that. And so so, you know, if you're not selling stuff, um, you know, you've not you've not got that cash flow coming through. So if, if this business gets back to normal, then I think it's going to be OK. But if you stick around with, you know, going back to the social distancing and pubs and bars have got their, you know, the business models of their customers are shot to pieces, then it's going to be hard work for Diageo over the next few years. And certainly, in my opinion, the share price does not assume that. Um, You know, the share price, like the share prices of a lot of these highly sought after companies, pretty much don't factor in. Any economic distress whatsoever. Isn't isn't there, you know, a lot of people buying into the argument that, you know, this will all be over soon, that there is this pent-up demand for people sitting at home, not spending their salaries. Um, everything's going to get back to normal at the end of the summer and, and, and everyone's going to be out partying, bars are going to be open, whoop-de-doo, off to the races. And, and so this is only temporary. Yeah, I'd say, that, I'd say that that's a fair comment. Um, you don't think that's necessarily the case and therefore isn't reflected in these valuations. So Diageo is a business that I think everybody would like to have in their portfolio, really, uh, unless they had objection to owning booze companies on some kind of moral grounds. But it's a company that, you don't, you know, there's always been the risk of paying too much for it. Now you might be looking at it thinking, oh, it's in bargain territory, but that may not be the case. No, I don't think, I don't think it's bargain territory. I think you're right what you just said, that there's a lot of people thinking... This is all a bit of a storm in a teacup. People will wake up. We'll all go back to it eventually because we have to and we'll be off to the races again. But I also think, I just think that Diageo and lots of other companies of, the, of a similar ilk are just benefiting from, from the same trend that they benefited from 2009 in that investors have flocked have flocked to the, the, these these large established companies with very strong market positions, very predictable cash flows. That are the sort of companies that they can stick away and sleep quite soundly at night. And I think there's a, I think these companies are again assuming the mantle of some you know some kind of insurance policy. You know there there is a f- even more clamour now for. This kind of company. So what we're seeing, you know, you're seeing it in tech. You're not seeing it as marked as something like Diageo, but you are seeing it to a lesser extent. So all all you're doing is that is the stocks that everyone's been rushing to since 2009, and what you've seen a huge bull market in, and you've seen them become more expensive, are becoming even more expensive because because their share prices are haven't fallen by as much as their profits have fallen or are going to fall. 
So if anything, these things become more expensive because people just think, well, where do I put my money? I think I described it as quality at any price in, uh, in a recent editorial. But then I guess there's a question over the quality of those earnings if you really cannot see what they're going to be in a year or uh, uh, even two years' time. Um, especially if, as you say, this kind of premium, premiumization trend runs into a brick wall. Um, let's talk about another company which is benefiting from, from that premiumization trend, which is Fevertree. And we've talked about that a lot on this podcast. They're not a big company. They don't have that kind of depth that someone like Diageo has. They must be in a terrible spot. The on-trade is big for them too. It's about 45%. And certainly, certainly if you look at the UK market, which has been, which has been the big driver been the big driver of, uh, of of the company's profits. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you just go into the pubs, and you know, we we've been into pubs, and you know, you order your gin and tonic, and you know, we, we've seen, you know, Fever Tree has been the only tonic in behind the bar. You know, that's how, that's how deeply entrenched it has become in the on trade, and um, you know, that that's become a game of you know diminishing returns. There's not much, probably not much more even in normal times, that they could get at that market. But yeah, that market's dead for them now, certainly for, certainly for the time being. Also, you know, things like, you know, gin and tonics on air, you know, they did a lot of contracts, you know, into airlines and that, and that kind of thing. Um, that's gone as well. So yeah, and then, I mean, also in bars, I mean, one of the things you take out of Diageo is how strong, you know, how strong the gin market's been for them, but also how strong the tequila market uh, has been has been for them, which is something that Fever Tree has been trying to get into, and you know, particularly in the American market, and that you know that level of support is taken from it from it as well. So yeah, these soft drinks companies are you know particularly particularly the, you know selling into the on trade spirits market uh, rather than the drink at home market. Um, yeah, it will be it will be horrible for them. Yeah, and and again, you know, you look at the share price, and I'm looking at it right now. You know, it's it's weaker than it has been, but it's not it's not been savaged in the way that you would expect it to. Given a that the, the previous the valuation had previously been driven by an expectation of growth in the US, and b the exposure to essentially a whole industry that has been shut down. I I think it's just you know what I've been going about. You know, people are are flocking to this. You know, as I say, the valuations of these companies are are getting more expensive. And you know, even if you even if you factor in more normal normal economic conditions, and you know, earnings get back to what you know they might have might have got back to, um, or might have got to, sorry, in a in a normal world, you know, Fever Tree shares are getting close to you know the sort of thirty times what people thought they were going to be earning. Anyway, which is ridiculous, and this is this is the problem that many people are having with the stock market right now, and that the the valuations of companies are not reflecting reality. And, and this has gone beyond whether you believe that there's a recovery or not. This is this is now say you know you do you run the numbers and you look back and say well, even if these things get back to normal or get back to making what they were making in 2019, a lot of these shares are just are just really expensive. And you know there is no alternative. For me, for me, that argument's getting weaker and weaker all the time. You have higher levels of uncertainty, and the and the rewards that you're being asked to pay up pay up for the returns that you get back are very very small, and and the risks that you're being asked to take are very very high. 
And, you know, I think, I think you know, some hedge fund guy the other day, Stanley Druckenmiller or whatever his name was. I think I read the same thing. Basically saying, and some people, you know, all say, oh, well, he's talking his own book. But I happen to agree with him, and I've got no, I've got no position here, that he, he thinks that the, the risk-reward on stocks, particularly American stocks, but we know that American stocks drive everything else, are the worst he's seen by 1999, and I'm inclined to agree with him. Yeah, that jumped out at me as well when I, when I read that. Um, and I actually saw a picture of uh, um, the guy from the Muddy Waters, the short-selling firm, and he'd go, he had a sort of bastardised Trump cap on... Um, you know, they make America great hat. But his one says, make risk matter again. And, and, and I think that's, you know, I want to get one, but I can't find them. Yeah, the bond market's been like that for the last 10, 11 years, John. Mm. We are where we are because essentially the central bankers of the world have tried to stop people, try to stop businesses failing. They've tried to stop people losing money and therefore they've got in the way of the market's actually finding the right price for things. And, um, and it's created no end of problems. Actually, you know, I, I'm very, very much of the view that if you believe, you know, you believe in capitalism and you want to make the profits, but you, you actually, one of, the, one of the great things about capitalism doesn't feel like it at the time, that if you allow it to work, it gets rid of, you know, it gets rid of, it's like a form of Darwinism. But actually, and that might sound brutal, but actually what happens through the process of things like recessions and bear markets is that you get prices, get to levels again where investment is attractive and you get entrepreneurs that come out, they think, great, it's cheap to invest now, I will invest in kind of productive assets that make that grow the economy and make everybody better off. And but if you get in the way, get in the way of that process, and you are, and this is what this is what the Americans were accusing the Japanese of doing for the last thirty years, in that they kept a lot of these zombie businesses alive, and that meant that the businesses that were still there were, were, were losing out because of it. And I think that's where we've got to now. Where next? I think that's one for another time, Phil. Good to talk to you. I know we usually like to end on a high note, but let's. Uh, given that all the pubs are shut, we'll uh, we'll save that for another time. Speak later. Cheers, John. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. But before we go, let me just talk you through what else we have in the ninth lockdown issue of the Investors Chronicle. Alongside Phil, in the comments section, we have the usual small cap magic from Simon Thompson, Chris Dillo on why social distancing defies economic logic, and the analytical wisdom of Mr. Bearbel. And Michael Taylor is looking at why it might be worth following short sellers into the supermarket sector. Short selling is also the focus of Algie Hall's new ideas farm this week, and he's also been on the hunt for value shares in his stock screen and reckons this long unloved strategy may finally have reached its nadir. There are some great interviews in the fun section, including Stephen Yu of the very successful Blue Whale Fund. Make sure you tune into the PF podcast later on, which we'll be recording soon. And alongside John Rosier, uh, our other portfolio economist, John Barron, is back in this week looking at the current difficulties in achieving effective diversification. And results are returning, including Sage, as we heard. And that means we can really start to assess the impact of COVID-19 on trading. And there's lots more in the magazine on top of all that. So thank you for listening. Thank you to all our guests, Harriet, John and Phil, and of course to my excellent co-host Megan. Pick up the magazine in All Good News Agents, the AIM 100 Part 2, which sees us counting down the biggest 50 companies on the junior market and seeing how they're bearing up in the shadow of a crisis. Or if you're still not quite ready to lift lockdown, get online and subscribe. Take care and speak soon.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.